This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Kellums. Later this hour, Rachel introduces us to the creators of a podcast about missing and murdered Indigenous women. The podcast has garnered national attention and is produced in Stillwell, Oklahoma. And Kyle handles the introductions for two makers and residents at the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville. He was there as they started a three-month creative adventure to help build a new piece of the facility's permanent collection. And Anna Pope will help us better understand the economics of dirt in Arkansas as the region continues to grow and build. Dirt's importance in that growth increases. That report in about six minutes. First, last month, three representatives from the Marshallese Education Initiative participated in a nuclear weapons ban conference hosted by the United Nations in Vienna, Austria. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth sat down with one of the participants to talk about the conference and what still needs to be done in addressing the U.S. nuclear legacy in the Marshall Islands. In June, a team from the Marshallese Educational Initiative based out of Springdale was invited to attend the first meeting of states' parties to the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The treaty, which seeks to ban nuclear weapons, was adopted by a majority of United Nations member states in 2017. MEI's Assistant Director, Benedict Cabo-Madison, joined Marcina Langreen and Marino Morris and spoke at the meeting held in Vienna, Austria. We uh, were invited to attend this event because our voices, of course, matter, especially in the nuclear area. We are still dealing with these uh, issues that stem from the nuclear testing program, health issues, environmental issues. Um, The United States has yet to address a lot of it. And so... We had uh, the, the opportunity to be a part of this, this uh, international conference, and uh, we got to also hear from other affected communities, um, people from the Pacific, uh, places such as uh, Kitabis, uh, French Polynesia, Kazakhstan, and uh, as well as folks from Australia especially Aboriginal lands that were used for nuclear testing. Madison says the conference, which included government delegates, international aid organizations, and civil society groups, was an important opportunity to share the nuclear legacy of the United States on the Marshallese Islands with a global audience and to connect with people from other affected countries. I met this uh, lady from French Polynesia because she saw me wearing a traditional necklace And she asked, what island are you from? And I said, I'm from the Marshall Islands. She said, wow, this is the first time I've met a Marshallese because I wanted to, I've always wanted to talk to a Marshallese about the experiences of nuclear uh, testing. And so as we were talking, you know, I mentioned uh, in terms of health issues, my people are dealing with uh, birth defects. We're dealing with cancers, uh, diabetes, and Even she said that her people are also experiencing the same things. And so really, you know, we may be from different backgrounds, but at the end of the day, we're all dealing with the same health issues because of nuclear testing or because of nuclear uh, development. In the 1940s and 50s, the U.S. carried out 67 nuclear weapons tests on the islands, including Castle Bravo in 1954 on the Bikini Atoll the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated. 
Madison says his organization is trying to educate people in Arkansas and globally about the effect nuclear weapons testing still has on the Marshall Islands and its people. Education is the biggest thing uh, because there are so many people in this country who are not aware of this history. Um, Yet it's American history, but it's not in the American history books. It's not taught in schools across this country. Um, And in fact, many of our elected officials are not aware of it. The U.S. developed a compact of free association with the Marshallese government in the 1980s, which allows islanders to travel to and work in the U.S. with only a passport. Northwest Arkansas is home to nearly 15,000 Marshallese, according to the latest Census Bureau data. And that compact is set to expire in 2023. The Biden administration has been kind of holding things off for quite a while now, for two years actually, um, because they don't want to address anything that has to do with nuclear. Um, But the Marshall Islands government, uh, their stance is that if the nuclear legacy is not addressed in these compact negotiations, then there is no compact. Um, And so I've I've had uh, Americans actually ask me, you know, what can we do? Um, And what I always try to tell people is, well, you need to go to your elected officials, tell them about the history, tell them about the issues that we're dealing with, and talk to them about the fact that There is nuclear waste in the Marshall Islands. Some parts of the Marshall Islands has high levels of radiation. And moving forward, the Marshallese people want a compact or free association that's based on trust, accountability, and transparency. Madison says the TPNW has some flaws. The U.S. is not even among the 86 nations that have signed the treaty. But he does believe high-profile meetings like this one are important to raising awareness about the threat of nuclear programs, especially as nuclear aggression looms in Ukraine. You look at what's happening in Ukraine and uh, Russia threatening to use nuclear weapons. Um, You'd never expect that, Uh, but here we are. And so we need to, you know, I, I don't think the TPNW is perfect, but it is the first step to Um, you know, nuclear justice to creating a nuclear-free world. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Dirt is a staple of long road trips splashed on the side of vehicles. The grime sticking to shoes and is used in developments like buildings and driveways throughout northwest Arkansas. Residents voicing environmental and safety concerns or opposing expanding quarries is an ongoing conversation in public meetings in our region. KUAF's Anna Pope reports the material in this part of the state is as common as, well, dirt, and tons of it move daily to meet demand. Dirt is in demand in northwest Arkansas. Dozens of trucks carry thousands of pounds of red dirt to construction sites across the region to be used as structural fill dirt to make dirt pads or place some other part in the developing process. Scott Murphy is the sales and marketing director at Gall Excavation. He says during the busy season, which is now, the company runs about 15 to 25 dump trucks full of dirt 
daily. Weight-wise, so you're looking for dirt, you're looking at cubic yardage, which is we haul 16 yards. And for rock, we we can, we can handle our beds, we can handle up to 20 yards. So 20 ton or 20 cubic yards of dirt. So 20, 20 ton would be the rock. So you're looking at 60 to 70,000 pounds per truck loaded. Gall Excavation has transported materials like red dirt, sand, topsoil, and mulch for commercial and residential use, in addition to volunteer work since 1981. Murphy says the company goes off plans and uses software to know, almost to the foot, how much dirt to use for a project. It's very dialed in because it gets very expensive if I missed, let's just say if I missed on an estimate for, you know, 10 loads of red dirt, well, I'm in trouble. You know, at three or four hundred bucks a load, you know, that, that adds up very, very fast. The national going rate for fill dirt can range anywhere from seven to twelve dollars per cubic yard, according to the national site materials. Murphy says the cost mainly depends on transportation. I mean, obviously it's going to go up and it's going to range from anywhere from 200 per load for a homeowner. And let's just say it's from here to Prairie Creek or Bentonville, Centerton, Cape Springs, anywhere from 200 and going a further away from our office or the quarry, it'll be a different price. Like the Siloam or Goshen, you're looking at, you know, a $300 cost. In addition to the dump trucks it owns, the company will also lease out vehicles to keep up with commercial and residential services. Murphy says because of the demand and ongoing major projects like the Walmart home office in Bentonville, leasing trucks is difficult because they might be in use. That's been the most demanding thing I would say in the last two to three months is the, the leasing of the trucks. We just can't get them. It's so frustrating. This resource in northwest Arkansas is popular. The northwest region of the state is built on the three million year old Boone Formation, a 300 to 390 foot thick geologic unit of limestone and chert stretching from parts of southwest Missouri to eastern Oklahoma. Clay from weathered limestone and chert are the two main components that make up red dirt used in construction. Quarries or open-cut mines for materials ranging from marble to red structural dirt run from central to northern Arkansas and the Highland region. And red dirt's one of the common uses around here, so um, that's just one of the materials that's quarried around here to provide material for these pads or foundation materials or subgrade for roads. That's Clint Wood, a civil engineering associate professor at the University of Arkansas. He says contractors use what is closely available to them because it is more cost-effective and what is used in other places depend on what their geology is and what material specifications are in place. Oh, certainly. I mean, it, uh, it costs money to sit there and get red dirt or, uh, you know, fill material in those cases, but transportation of the material is just as costly. Uh, and oftentimes the transport of hauling it to your site is just as expensive as what the red dirt is. Dirt can be used to bring up the elevation of a site, as filler to strengthen the ground or to line landfills. Because of how much the area is growing, dirt is required for small and large projects to be used under development. Murphy says Gall Excavation is doing the dirt work for large sites, especially near Highway 49. But also he says the material goes to several smaller projects at residential properties. Uh, building pads, if you will. I mean, you can build driveways out of it. You can 
build a lot of things out of it. That's what we use a lot of for. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. Governor Asa Hutchinson is celebrating the rollout of a new mobile missile launcher produced in Arkansas for the U.S. military. The first modernized M270A2 multiple launch rocket system was delivered to the Army after being produced at Lockheed Martin in southern Arkansas. Speaking in a video message, Governor Hutchinson thanked the company and its employees. The Camden facility works hard to protect our service members, including the many who call Arkansas home. I'm proud that Arkansas will continue to work in support of America's men and women in uniform and for our national defense. Governor Hutchinson joined Lockheed Martin officials in 2019 to announce an expansion to its Center of Excellence facility in Camden. Lockheed Martin was awarded a $224 million contract from the U.S. Army in April to continue restoring and upgrading the mobile missile launchers. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting the classic rock band Three Dog Night to the auditorium in Eureka Springs on Thursday, July 14th. Hits include Mama Told Me Not to Come, Joy to the World, an old-fashioned love song, and more. Tickets are available online at tickets.thundertix.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, opening July 2nd. Free tickets at crystalbridges.org. Suzanne Woods Fisher lives in California, but most of the characters in her books live on the other side of the country. Woods, who will be at the Fayetteville Public Library Monday evening, has written more than 40 books, almost all of them fiction. She's written about people in Maine, in Cape Cod, and Amish in Pennsylvania in her series about the Deacon family. Her latest novel, The Sweet Life, follows a mother and daughter who have been dealt an unexpected jolt. The mother, Marnie, follows that with something else unexpected. She buys a failing ice cream parlor. When Suzanne Woods Fisher visits the library Monday, she'll discuss her new book, but also a central character in that book, ice cream. She says she'll deliver a history of ice cream as part of her presentation. Which is pretty fascinating because it goes back a lot longer than anyone could even imagine. Back to, I think, like 650 BCE, way back to Persia, and I'll kind of fly through history and just show how it has evolved into America's favorite frozen dessert. And I can speak with some authority on this topic because my husband is a professional ice cream maker. Wow. Okay. Um, so does that mean he experiments with flavors and texture such and such as that? Even better. My husband went to Penn State's ice cream school. Did you even know there was such a thing? Not only did I know such a thing, I have had ice cream from that creamery on that campus. Oh, and it's so good, isn't it? Oh, my it's gosh. It's 122 years old since, I think, 1892 it has been, or maybe longer than that. It has been going on, Penn State's ice cream school, out of the creamery where you enjoyed a probably really high-fat ice cream, <laughs> so good, and from Happy Pennsylvania Cows, and... It is held in January for obvious reasons, because that's when ice cream makers have a little spare time. Right. And they have a program for, uh, you know, like true professionals, like all the greats have gone, Baskin and Robbins and 
Ben and Jerry's and Jenny's Splendid ice cream and on and on. And then they have a short course for serious hobbyists, and that's my husband. So he has actually come out of Penn State Ice Cream School raring to go, and our this has happened a couple years ago. Our kitchen now, everything I can't reach is an ice cream accoutrement. <laughs> that's awesome. Steve takes it really seriously. In fact, just to give you a little bit of a hint of how seriously he takes this, and this all was woven into my book, The Sweet Life, Steve made vanilla ice cream 59 times until he got it right, and and meaning got it right for his satisfaction. And vanilla is the hardest flavor to make because it's so pure, whereas chocolate or coffee can mask a lot of ice cream maker flaws. Not vanilla. Vanilla's the real thing, full of integrity. So if you can get a good vanilla, you know you've got a pretty good ice cream. Well, then I see some... Uh, you know, commonality between 59 times to get vanilla right and your career as a writer because you wrote, you you had children, you you had other careers, you kept at it, you had one published that attracted an agent, so there's sort of this theme of perseverance in your marriage. Not about your marriage, but... I love that. Really good point. That's very true. Being a writer takes a lot of persistence because no one is looking for you, not at all. You have to really get yourself in that door and then try to try to keep that door open. So you're right. That's an awesome point. So this is um, The Sweet Life. I mean, you've had a couple dozen or actually more than that books before this. Uh, what finally landed with ice cream and, and, and having this in Cape Cod uh, was it having a husband who was a serious hobbyist? Did that help influence this? In a very curious way, because it actually boils down to my editor, who has been to my home a number of times and has had my husband's ice cream. And finally, as we were working on the concept for a new series, and it, we knew it was going to be a coastal series because summer and books and the, the ocean, they sort of go hand in hand. And she actually said to me, I want ice cream in this book. And I really gave that a lot of thought, and I decided, okay, if she wants ice cream, I am going to give her ice cream. So the basic story premise is a mother and a daughter who land on Cape Cod for some backstory reasons that are kind of hard. Both of them are having to sort of bounce back after a, a tough time, and they end up buying a ice cream shop on Cape Cod that is almost in bankruptcy, and they are trying to turn it around and make it work. So I, the setting, Cape Cod is so wonderful. Chatham is the town I chose because I have an uncle who lived there. My dad is from the Cape, and my uncle was a dentist there all his career. And I knew a lot about Chatham. I've been there quite a bit. I knew even little things about Chatham, like church bells only ring on Sunday morning, you know, little things that kind of really make a story genuine. And it's such a beautiful setting for for a you know summer book as well as ice cream because ice cream and summer work so well together and then this idea of this old building getting kind of brought back to life which is kind of the theme of the book the mom and the daughter kind of coming back to life as well and ice cream chatham is all kind of part of the whole scene i'm not sure i presented that as well as i wanted to but that's the story well i'm glad you brought up that you know you have family history from Cape Cod, because here you are all the way on the other side of the country. You've got an ocean not too far. You went to 
college in Santa Barbara, right? So you've had this ocean. But but family history plays a lot, I think, into what you've decided to write about and where you've decided to set so many of your novels, doesn't it? I think familiarity is really important. I feel, I just feel that a, a writer has to be where he's writing, he or she is writing, because there is so much you get from that original sourcing, even just the way the air feels and the wind blows and the sky and the sunsets. There's just nothing like it. It really makes a difference anywhere you are to be there and soak it up and see what people are eating, see what people are, music they're listening to. It makes a difference. And if a writer isn't willing to do that work, I kind of has, have some doubts. I, I don't think you can do it all via the Internet, even through good interviews. There's nothing like that on-the-ground experience to give your book a little bit of life. Well, and I'm guessing even the smallest things, like the way the the ocean might smell on Cape Cod or how it feels to be out. I don't, I, I'm not familiar with Massachusetts much at all, but like, I don't know, a salty smell or feel on your nose if the wind blows in off the ocean? Yes, in fact, I wrote a, a series in Maine and I was there and I was in a home of a friend who lives right on the water and she said she feels in her bones when the ferry is coming. She just can sense it, almost the way you might sense the time of day changing. And I I just thought, oh, I had to write that in because that is exactly what you're talking about, Kyle. That just that sense of being there and knowing something that locals know. So it is important. It's really great. And for I think especially for coastal writings or even anywhere you write, the setting is one of the characters. It really is. It, it has a, a huge uh, influence on how the book feels and how the writer gets absorbed in the story. I'm wondering, you mentioned that sense of place. Is that because you have several series, book series, you know, where where we go back to maybe see a character as she or he is aged or something like that. And does that, writing in a series, does that give you a sense of place when you start the next novel in that series? Yes, I think I think you've already established that you've got a little bit of the groundwork already there, so you're picking up where you left off, if, assuming it's in the same setting, which actually is helpful because a series is not that easy. Trying to keep the umbrella of a story all the way from start to finish, that story arc, and to make it sort of work. I mean, let's, for example, look at Harry Potter. Every book was sort of a story arc in itself with the school year beginning and ending, but there was also this giant story arc of him going through the school so keeping that going, is that is not easy to do. And usually it's the second book that's the hardest one of all to, to kind of keep the reader interest. When you're writing that second book, do you have to go back and read your first book just to make sure you've got T's crossed and I's dotted? I do, and I have to also, a lot of times I have to really evaluate, did a character story wrap it up in the first mm. book so we don't need to keep pushing on with something. I mean, you've seen a lot of television shows where, you know, boy meets girl, boy lose, gets girl, boy loses girl, and then they have to really botch it up in the second series by breaking them up again. And, you know, I kind of feel sometimes you just need to let, let it go and start with some fresh characters or some maybe back characters, people that were sort of lurking offside, and you can bring them up to the front of the stage. So that, that's kind of the fun thing, but that's all part of, part of the writing path. 
I'm speaking with Suzanne Woods-Fisher. She'll be at the Fayetteville Public Library on July 18th, talking about The Sweet Life, her latest novel, as well as the history of ice cream. Many of your novels uh, also are inside the world of the Amish, and I know that this, too, comes, I believe, from a place of ancestry, at least the inspiration. Yes, and I have to say I'm really impressed with your homework. You have really worked and found a lot of great details about my background. My grandfather was raised plain. This is my mother's side of the family, not the Cape Cod side, but the Philadelphia area family. And my grandfather was raised near Gettysburg in a family of 11, and he ended up leaving to head to Penn State, actually, and and then became a radio announcer and then went into publishing. He was German Baptist, which is one of the plain groups. It's almost like if you think of a tree, and the tree is maybe the Anabaptists, then the Mennonites come from that, the German Baptists, the um, Hutterites, the Apostolic Brethren, all kinds of river brethren, a lot of different denominations have split off of that larger trunk of the Anabaptists. Amish were the last ones to come to the party. They were the most recent, and yet they are the ones we really recognize the most among the plain people. That's kind of the term, the general term for the Anabaptists are the plain people because they live a simple life. They generally dress sort of plain. They don't have media in their home. They The older Amish go a little further where they don't use cars, they horse and buggy, they don't have electricity, they're not connected to the public utility grid. So I had a genuine connection to the plain people through my cousins. And have. And when my editor had known of that, that, that's how I got connected to writing Amish fiction, because at the point when I was just starting to segue from writing magazine articles into books, Amish fiction was just starting to really take off. And I know my editor at Ravel wanted someone with a genuine connection to the plain people, and that's how I came in. And I actually came in on nonfiction books, a book called Amish Peace, Simple Wisdom for a Complicated World that was kind of a foundational book for me in writing and later to write fiction credibly. I really go back to that book because it just gave me such a good understanding of how these people think and feel and what makes them the way they are without making them perfect. They're not perfect, and yet they they do have a lot to offer us. There's quite a lot we can learn from these people. Here's a question I've always wanted to ask a writer, so I'm going to ask it. How do you come up with names? Because is it it can't be random. You've got to you've got to be thinking somehow deliberately and intentionally about the names of your characters that you'll be spending time with when you're writing them. That's a really good point and it is not that easy. Now the Amish for example in Lancaster there's only about in fact even among the whole order old order Amish there's only about 50 some surnames because they really have a closed gene pool. So you have to get the names right because there are different names generally that are going to be in Ohio, different names in Indiana than the names that would be, and we're talking surnames, Mm -hmm. in Lancaster. Now, here's a funny thing. In writing The Sweet Life, I chose a name that I felt was just a little different for the mom because she is different. She's not the kind of a mom you would expect. She's actually probably got ADHD. She's very creative, very sort of artsy and starts tons of projects and never finishes anything. But she's also, you know, a loving heart, very a lot of spark. She's the one who kind of bought that house on the ice cream shop on the sly. Didn't tell her CPA daughter about this. I gave her the name Marnie. 
and I will never make a complicated name like that again because every <laughs> time the edits came back, it came back as Marina or Maury or Mary or whatever. And I thought, oh, I just pushed it a little too far there, even though to me she was kind of that Marnie, just a little distinct. And I named her daughter Dawn because I was thinking Teflon Dawn. Dawn is a CPA. She is a sort of a by-the-books, rule-focused. She was taking care of her mom from a young age. So that was why I picked her name. But it is it is funny about names. And then you, as you're writing the story, you get sort of attached to the name. So if you have to switch them out, it's not that easy. You write on your webpage that happy endings are important. And why do you why do you write that? Well, part of it is I think good stories are ones that leave you a little bit of a better person at the end of it. And I I don't mean to sound bleak, but our world is a troubled world. There's no shortage of troubles in it. And I think to bring people to a better place, to kind of a conclusion that it's going to be okay, and it all kind of writes itself, I think that is just a really powerful thing for an author to do. So it doesn't mean all stories end with the good guy winning or the right couple getting together or something like that. But I kind of think it it really is a gift to a reader to leave them feeling a sense of satisfaction and a sense that they can carry on and pick up and they're stronger than they think and life is going to be good and tomorrow's going to be a better day. Suzanne Woods Fisher's latest novel is titled The Sweet Life. She will be at the Fayetteville Public Library on Monday, July 18th to talk about the book and the history of ice cream. You can learn more at SuzanneWoodsFisher.com. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. KUAF is supported by Fayetteville Animal Shelter and Services, supported by the City of Fayetteville, and dedicated to the welfare of animals and the people who associate with them. Information at 444 444- Three four five six or Fayetteville Animal Services on Facebook. Ozarks at Large is underwritten in part by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is Ozarks at Large. The point of the exhibits at the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville not to have us think about the skill required to make those exhibits. The interactive stations are designed to engage young minds and often the body to learn and have fun. But those exhibits do require makers with skill to create them. That creativity, using mind and body, takes place beyond the public spaces at the Amazium. Simon Muse is the senior exhibition manager at the Amazium. It all happens back here in the shop. I can't take all the credit, of course, for really anything. This is definitely a team effort. That team is made up of engineers, carpenters, artists, and for a few months this summer, two makers in residence. I was a kid that wanted to be an astronaut when he grew up and ended up being an artist. Dayton Castleman, a Northwest Arkansas-based artist and art curator, is one of this summer's two makers in residence. That combination of sort of the curiosity and fascination with the physical sciences and then the ambiguity and poetry of art, um, those two things come together really nicely in the context of a museum like the Amazium. And um, I was around at its inception and um, have in many respects always just just always wanted to like do something officially, I suppose, or be a part of the, the generation of, of the fascinating things that happen here. The Makers in Residence program allows the guest creators to work 
alongside the full-time team to expand the museum's offerings. The collaboration will become part of the museum's permanent collection. Sam Dean, the executive director of the museum, says bringing outside creative people into the building allows the staff to consider new ideas. It's a chance for us to, I think, think about our work in a different way and, and share ways of building things that last. You know, we have to we have to know how to build things that, that might not just be curiosity-inducing, they have to be resilient. They have to withstand the rigors of five-year-old play, which can be pretty tough. But it's also a chance for us to input ideas into our system from the larger creative community. And this is what we love, this import and export of ideas. And, and not just through conversations, not just through panel discussions, but, but literally working in shops together, being able to see what each other are working on, and be able to be there at that moment where you're ready to have a breakthrough, or you're stumped. Tyler Altenhofen, a software engineer who came to the Amazium from San Francisco to spend the summer helping design and create a new exhibit, says the opportunity to have about 12 weeks to have an idea, then walk a few steps to a 3D printer or saw or laser cutter to further that idea is something special. The other thing is just like the exhibits that are in creation around here are very inspiring or just like the tools they have available. You know, they have an entire vat of dry ice over there, um, which has inspired some ideas about like lasers and smoke um, in interaction. So I think just kind of being in like a creative space really helps you... Um, ideate about about what you can create. On the day last month, Tyler and Dayton talked to us. The summer residency program was just getting started. In fact, it was the moment the two makers met. No concrete ideas for what the work will be exactly had been formed. Already, though, they were bouncing around ideas. I asked them about the other side of the process, the ideas that don't work as planned or send you back literally to the digital drawing board. Tyler answered first about the patience of creation. I think iteration is incredibly important in any kind of design process, but even more so in a design process that's going to end up being interacted with kids day in and day out forever. Um, you're kind of going into it with bad expectations if you think the first thing you're going to make is going to work and be perfect. Um, so I think going into it with the right head um, can mitigate a lot of those feelings. I've certainly gone through many, many tinkering sessions where at the end of it, the thing falls apart and, um, you know, it's part of the fun. Yeah, the um, most invention um, develops from a simple idea to increasingly complex ideas as you um, modify, add, improve, um, nuance, uh, tinker, so on and so forth. I too have a boneyard of of ideas that have been um, that have caught my fancy and have spent time developing that then become simply um, sort of gravel on the path toward more valuable ideas. I'd say the um, one of the pressures is just the the three month length of the residency. It would be it's, it would be different if it was a year. It would be different if it was, you know, two years or something like that. So there's a little pressure to do the discovery and research dimension of the project very carefully. And um, fortunately, you don't have to do that alone. Simon Muse, the senior exhibitions manager, says that teamwork at the Amazium brings some creative institutional memory that can assist the new makers. How people are going to be engaging with it. Uh, consider the safety elements of how you can control how people engage with the experience in a productive yet safe manner, 
uh, what sort of the learning goals are, what it is that we're actually trying to teach, and how can we teach that in a way where there's no human to explain it, uh, that it's just something you pull from the experience itself. And Sam Dean, the museum's executive director, says for everybody involved, the team concept has to extend from the people making the exhibits to the people of many different ages who interact with the exhibits. As adults, many of us adults leave our playful side behind. We have serious stuff to do, and, and for kids, play is serious stuff. And so when they come here, they get right to it. And I think lots of cases, you know, if we have the right situation that has multi, has multiple layers to it, there are experiences that kids come in and they sail right through it. And we as adults struggle. We struggle going through the climber. My body doesn't fit through there like it would have when I was, you know, 10 years old or 30 years old or 40 years old. But I think what we get remembered to do, we, remind, we get reminded to play. And when it comes to technology in particular, kids will sail through some things and I think do reverse mentoring of their own adults that remind them to play. But frankly, adults are learning skills from kids as they mess around with the, the, the exhibits and the experiences we put out there. The Amazium will celebrate its seventh birthday Friday from 10 until 5 with what it describes as a fluffy approach. There will be finger knitting, felting, and something called scope on a rope and more. Details at amazium.org, or you can look at the Facebook page for The Amazium. And we plan to catch up with Tyler and Dayton later this summer as their residency nears an end to see how the creation process worked for them. This is Ozarks at Large. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Over 5,500 indigenous women and girls have gone missing according to the most recent data from the Department of Justice. Indigenous women are murdered at a rate 10 times higher than any other ethnicity. A group of students from Stillwell High School in Oklahoma investigated and reported on the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women. Their podcast received national recognition from Frontline NBC and NPR. Contributors to the podcast, Jim Afusen and Tyla Sawi, who were sophomores at the time of publication, told me about the significance of working on this project as Native women themselves. It was scary to reach out to the people that were like the family of the the women that were missing because I was scared that I was going to say something that was like going to trigger them and to bring back all those memories. But I think that was the most scariest part about that is like asking them good questions in a sense of them knowing how to answer and knowing. And I told them like before I started, it's like you don't have to answer any of these if you don't want to. Yeah, how did you approach that? It's such a it's such a sensitive topic. What was that like? It was hard for me because once they let it out, it was sad. Like it was it was because like I felt it in me because I'm a Native American woman and we call those our sisters. And just to hear their stories and their families tell it and say what they loved about them and what they just what they knew about them of that short time they got them. It was just it was sad. It was amazing. It was interesting and. I'm really honored that I got to talk to the families of them. 
I especially love, you don't just stop at, you know, here's the issue, here's what's happened, but really explaining the context, the history of this is what sisterhood, this is what women mean to us. Did you guys feel like it was important to include that to tell this story? Yes. Yeah, I feel like people wouldn't have been able to grasp like the, the like heaviness of the topic if they didn't know what we go through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And hard to, it was hard to write in a in a way because like I'm a woman myself but writing it to make other women feel it and other people feel it even if they're not a woman you know I was wanting them to feel it I was wanting them to like understand it and that was the hard part about writing the whole thing it was like oh is this going to be good is are they going to feel this part but I think it all came out pretty good yeah how how long were you guys working on this project for Oh my gosh, I don't even know. I think we started it in uh, like late January, I feel like. And then we were working on it until April, whenever we had to set it. It's like the editing, the the recordings, we had to do so many of the recordings because we were like, so I was embarrassed of like how I sounded. I know that, but we just had to do so much retakes and editing and we had on top of that we had other podcasts going out too so we had to share the equipment and just and we were learning how to do it as we were going yeah so like all the research that we were doing I think that was the thing that took us the longest because we weren't necessarily sure what we should be looking for so it was just kind of like us learning on like how to do everything where did you get this idea from how did it come about did your advisor mention it did you guys come up with it like where did it come from I wanted something different like I really did. I did not want to do the other podcasts. And I think it came about, I think I asked her if I could do something different. Yeah. I was like, can we do something about the MMIW? And she was like, yes, yes, that would be great. You know, she loved the idea. And then we got that down and we started on that. And we didn't think many people were going to do it with me and Gemma because me and Gemma wanted yeah. to do that. And then everyone just hopped on it and wanted to help us. And It was good. I like that you guys pulled heavy statistics, right? Actual numbers and just accredited information. Were you thinking like this has to be as ironclad as, you know, bulletproof as it can be to go out? Or what was your thinking behind that? If we didn't have the statistics and like the numbers that proved how bad it actually was, people wouldn't have cared about it. They wouldn't have believed. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think people would have listened to it and thought like, oh, these are a bunch of liars. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about. So we need it backup. We need it proof. We need it statements that are like real about it. So people can look it up and they can see it right there and know that it's, it's true. And it, it happens every day. It happens everywhere. And we need a stop to it. You know, we need a have our powerful voice we need it to be heard for our women our men and just anyone native american so i think we really need it to be real in it to show people you you finished you've done the story you put in the hard work right pulled all nighters basically and then it's published it's out what is the, that response like what do people tell you either from family members or just other people that um heard it i know our like listens numbers I guess is what you would call it on SoundCloud which is where I posted it it not to brag yeah. but it was the it's numbers high. it was high <laughs> the like our numbers went up a whole lot faster than the other podcasts from our class and just that it was like that was like a reward I guess from 
doing the work for it? I think the reward for me, like, was the the aftermath of it was, like, the families texting me. And because my mom's really close with some of the missing girls. Like, I think she's close to this one woman. I think her name's Kasira something. I forgot, but she's really close to her mom. And her mom hear the podcast and she fell in love with it and I like the family from the two women that I've interviewed or texted over the phone they they sent so much love back and that's what made me know that we did something you know we did something right because they told me that I'm glad you can be their voice or you guys can be their voice because they're not here to tell their story so I felt really great knowing that we did something for them and I think even if we wouldn't have got like the response that we did from yeah. the community, it still would have felt good, good because we were talking about something that in our community needed to be spoken about because it's an issue that no one really talks about here. It was brand new to us or yeah. to the community. So I think that's what was really good. And I know we've kind of known about in missing indigenous women, but really, to be honest, if you look online, there's not a ton of information besides like a ton of coverage, I should say, over it, which really is it. It's such a prevalent issue. Yeah, the the sad part too is like there's so many cases, and I know this sounds but like of white people, and people go out of their way to share, to get noticed, to get this, to get that for them. And do you see that with Native women or men or just like the people? I don't. And that's what I personally don't, that's why I'm kind of glad we made the podcast, which I'd want to do more to make it more too with it, because you don't see none of that. You know, you don't see who you look like on a newspaper when you're missing or dead. You only see white people and you only see them going so hard to bring them home or find their bodies, you know, but you don't see that for us. So I want, I want to change that in a way. And I hope someday we do, you know, make it different. And it's so sad because even on like in like Hollywood, like TV shows, movies, you don't see Native Americans in shows or anything like the really the first kind of like representation that we've had is reservation dogs. And that's like came out last year and it was such a big deal within like native communities because that's like, it was written by natives. It was native actors. It was so cool. And it was filmed in Oklahoma and yeah, like everyone fell in love with it. Yeah. And I think as like people from like who, people who weren't even native Americans, you know, they were like, wow, this is awesome. You know, and I'm like the show actually like helped out a lot of native Americans. Yeah. It's like really great. And I think that was just stuff like that. Just representation is a good step in the direction of bringing attention to MMIW because most of the time we're just kind of swept under the rug, kind of, it seems or feels like. So I think forcing people to like recognize it and like showing them that we're actually like still here in America, I think that that's a, our first step. For those who haven't listened to the podcast yet, yet if you could just describe it and sum it up in one one or two words what would those be mine will be see it you know see it all when you when you listen see it feel it hear it 
And I think that's it. I spoke to Jim Afusen and Tyla Sawi from Stillwell, Oklahoma via Zoom. Their podcast about missing and murdered Indigenous women is available on SoundCloud. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. And tomorrow on Ozarks, Danny Simmons, a co-creator of Def Jam Poetry on HBO and a poet, author, and visual artist, is coming to Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art Friday. And when he read my poetry, he had read it before I got there and embraced it. He said, you're really talking about something. You're really on to something. I was, I guess I would just, I guess, say filled with pride. Our conversation on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. You can also find the interview tomorrow at OzarksAtLarge.com and through the Ozarks at Large podcast. Opera in the Ozarks presents its 71st summer season now through July 22nd at Inspiration Point in Eureka Springs. Featuring 22 performances of three fully staged operas, including Mozart's Cosi Fantute, Puccini's La Rondina, and Sondheim's A Little Night Music, plus a special Broadway cabaret in Fayetteville and more. Tickets and season schedule at opera.org. KUAF is giving away two tickets to see Josh Groban with special guests, including the New Orleans-based Preservation Hall Jazz Band at the Walmart Amp in Rogers on Thursday, July 21st at 7 p.m. The winner will be announced on Wednesday, July 20th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com for more information and to enter to win. The Bella Vista Radio Club is sponsoring a weekend amateur radio license class, August 20th and 21st. The class on Sunday will conclude with the license exam. It's free, but there is a $15 fee to take the exam. The class will be held at the Northwest Arkansas Law Enforcement Training Academy in Springdale. You can register at bellavistaradioclub.org. And Loud Women Incorporated, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering young women and rural students to take action on issues of inequality through the use of speech and debate, has just launched applications for its ambassador program, which allows high school and college students to write on behalf of the organization. The deadline for applications is July 15th. For more on Loud Women Incorporated, loudwomencommunity.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville. Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Short, Oklahoma. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. I'm Kyle Callums. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Contributors to today's show include Daniel Carruth and Anna Pope. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah and is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Additional content was provided by the hardworking KUAR crew in Little Rock. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. for another brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. Don't forget, you can always listen to past features, stories, interviews, and full editions of Ozarks at Large at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. And you can take Ozarks at Large with you wherever you go with the free Ozarks at Large podcast. You can subscribe through Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or most anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great Wednesday. Show today produced by Matthew Moore. Who is here with us in Studio One Twenty? Hi, Kyle. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Matthew. Uh, if you've been listening the last couple of days, you know that um, I am borderline obsessed with the World Games that are taking place in Alabama. The World Games are a once every four year international competition focusing on sports that are not included in the Winter or Summer Olympics. That's right. And these are great sports that many people haven't heard of, but that I find fascinating, like fistball mm-hmm. or lifeguarding. Or canoe polo. Right. And so 
this week, Rachel, Matthew and I have been uh, talking about some of the sports, and I have been giving short quizzes before the show ends to see how much he might know about some of the more obscure sports that are included in the world games. Very educated guesses on my part, Rachel. He, he was correct yesterday. So I'm first going to ask you, Rachel, about tug-of-war, which is, in fact, included in the world games. Mm-hmm. It was an Olympic sport, by the way. And in St. Louis in 1904. Hey, thank you so much. <laughs> did yes. I just ruin your question? No. Okay, great. not. My question about the current uh, tug-of-war competition, there is a difference between men's tug-of-war and women's tug-of-war in Alabama, aside from the weight or the number of members of team. There's something else that's different between, I love the look on your face right now, Rachel, between um, the men's tug-of-war and the women's tug-of-war. Do you know what that difference is? I'm going to guess the rope is different. That's a great guess. Matthew, do you have a guess? The length of rope? No. Okay. For this edition of the World Games, the men's tug-of-war is being conducted outside. The women's tug-of-war is inside. Ah. And I don't know if that just has to do with venue availability or what. All right. Hmm. Another sport is Korf ball. Right. K-O-R-F-B-A-L-L. Yeah. Korf ball is sort of a melding of basketball and netball. Netball, of course, played in her youth by our own Karee Banton. That's right. In Jamaica. So which one of these things is not in Korf ball? Remember, it is on a basketball-like court. Mm-hmm. You have a ball. You shoot at a hoop. Does it not have a backboard? Does it not allow dribbling? Does it mandate that you have co-ed teams? Or does it not use a clock? I'm going to say there's no clock. Matthew says no clock. Backboard just feels right to me, but this is based on no prior knowledge (laughs) of any of these sports. So, there is not a backboard. Uh Uh-huh. So you have to be a dead shot. Uh, You cannot dribble. Right. Teams are co-ed. Uh-huh. The sport is always played with men and women on the same team, which is awesome. There's no clock. Oh. Man, I'm, wow. I'm acing this. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm winning the World Games trivia. There, there you go. And that, that's pretty cool. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Matthew Moore. Thank you so much for listening. We're back tomorrow at noon and 7. Have a great rest of your Wednesday.